The title of this sermon is United We Stand, Divided We Fall. The last two weeks, we started uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes and he says, Now walk worthy or walk fulfilling the calling with which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And he goes on in our verse today, verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. This is God's word. I believe it's a word for us today. Let's pray. Our ears are open, Lord. Hearts are open. We want to hear from you. We want to be full of all the fullness of you. Ask that love would abide in us, through us this morning. Submit my plan to you and my notes to you, my mouth, my mind to you. I ask that you would anoint me to preach faithfully your word and that you would give us the grace and power to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. As a culture, um, we love this idea of unity, right? We love the idea of the coexist bumper sticker on the back of the car where Everybody from all different walks of life can all be united together. And we've loved it for a long time. You know, I think about John Lennon writing that song, Imagine. He says, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Whoa, oh, oh, oh. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. I love it. I've written songs like that too. We love this idea of like, yes, the idea of unity. But here's the deal with unity. If people are going to be unified, they must unite around something. You can't just erase country borders and erase things like different kinds of religion or different kinds of gender. You can't just erase things and expect there to be unity. That's not how unity works. You have to unite around something. I think John Lennon was a brilliant songwriter. I think that song is a beautiful song, but erasing diversity does not create unity, which is why the people who have tried to, you know, and made the the most, taken the most ground in, in helping people be unified have all found something to unite around, whether it was love or tolerance or whatever, which is what happened in, say, 1963 when people from different religions, different races, different genders, different social classes all marched the same civil rights march together. 250 of them, the biggest public demonstration in history. They all did it together. How were they 
able to create a united front. They were unified around the same thing. They were unified around racial equality. And for at least a day, the goal of racial equality was greater and trumped whatever their other differences, big or small, may have been. The only reason they were able to unite was because there was something bigger than themselves that they were uniting around. Because if you don't have something bigger than yourself, then the only people that you will be unified with are the people who are exactly the same as you. And when we're talking about the church and the body of Christ, as we'll see in next week's passage, we are not all the same. There is diversity in the body. So how then unity? How then can Paul command us to keep the unity? Well, it has to be because we are united by something bigger than ourselves. And as we'll see today, all roads point up. All roads lead to a triune God. The Trinity is at the center of our unity. About 300 years before um, Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus, if you don't know, Ephesus was like the main metropolitan city in uh, Macedonia, in the Macedonian Empire. And 300 years prior to this letter being written, um, it was still the main, the biggest city in the Macedonian Empire. And as a new pharaoh was uh, rising to power, his name was Ptolemy I, Um, there was a little bit of like division in the city and in the Macedonian Empire because it wasn't just full of Egyptians. There was also a lot of Greeks living there and Greeks and Egyptians don't worship the same God. They don't worship the same way. And so there was segregation and division. And Ptolemy thought uh, it must be because there's no common ground for them to unite around. If we could just find something that they could all unite around that was bigger than themselves then I think we could create some unity. And so he commissioned a famous Greek, Greek sculptor to construct a new, brand new God, to make a brand new God, to make a brand new idol who would appeal to this eclectic group of people in the city. And the statue of Serapis was created. And Serapis was an idol that looked a lot like a normal Greek God, but he had all the Egyptian trappings. And Ptolemy had now created this pluralistic God in an attempt to bring unity to his people. And this God, Serapis, would be a people pleaser, right? He could hopefully satisfy the Greek desire for a king and the Egyptian desire for a deity. The idea of the the up-and-coming Pharaoh was, if we can't unite around a God that we already, one of us already has, then maybe we can unite around a new God. Sorry. And so that's what they did, created a new God, and they worshiped this new God together. This is the context into which Paul is speaking. And he's not writing this letter to, like, combat this context, but that is the context that he is speaking into. In the midst of this, uh, an array of disappointing gods who can never transform anyone, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus to clarify where their unity and their peace actually comes from. You want to be united? You got to unite around something. You got to unite around something bigger than yourself and your ideas. That's the only path forward. We saw in chapter two that this is what Jesus did on the cross. He in himself brought two together. That's why Paul's like, 
Gentiles and Jews to Paul. That's like all there was in the world. Those Jews and Gentiles, like Jews and everybody else. And united in Jesus. United in the cross. And now he's saying, now keep it. Now keep this unity. After all, where else would you go? He's saying, there's only one God. Where else are you going to go if the unity happens here? Like, where else could you go? If you want to be united, there is only one God. And he says in verse 4, there is only one spirit. And this is the spirit that unites us. This is the Holy Spirit that unites us. Which means the same work that's going on down the street by the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that's working here. And let me say just for a moment, when you see that person preaching the gospel to thousands of people, don't say, I can't do that, man. That's a different, that's a different kind of thing. Yes, you can do that. You're not going to do it like that, and you shouldn't do it like that because you're not them. You're you. But don't tell me I can't do that. Like old people, don't tell me oh, I'm just going to let the kids do it. As if the Holy Spirit in you got old and now has a cane. <laughs> you got old and retired. The Holy Spirit didn't get old and retire. High schoolers, J-hires, people who just graduated this last year, going into your first year of college. Don't tell me like, ah, I'll just let like the, the older people do it. I'll just let the grown-ups do it. They got more experience. As if you have like a kid version of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a junior Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit that's working in them is working in you. And let me just say to single people, man, because I hear from single people this, like, idea, and I, I get it. I felt the same thing before I got married, that, like, I can't really start my life until that piece is in place. I'm waiting for my spouse, and when my spouse comes, then, like, oh, okay, now I can finally, like, start living. What? What Paul says is your life kind of stops, actually, when you get married. <laughs> All the married people say amen. <laughs> your life doesn't start when you get married. It slows down. Because Paul's like, now you got to be concerned with your wife before you could just think about the Lord. Your wife, you're going to slow down, dude, when you find a wife. The same Holy Spirit who's in that married couple is in you. Same spirit, one spirit. Then he says, one Lord in verse 5. That's Jesus. Now, this was a big deal for Paul in writing to this pluralistic um, culture, he's saying, no, there's just one. There's just one Lord. There's only one God. Our God is one. His name is Jesus, and it wasn't popular then for Paul to say that, and I'll tell you what, it's not popular for us to say now that in all the universe, there was one God, and his name is Jesus, and everybody answers to him. And if you believe it, that means you're not going to be popular either. You're going to be viewed as being arrogant and intolerant and ignorant you're not going to be liked by people maybe that you respect. But I love what John Piper says on the subject. He says, if it is true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that knowing and trusting him is the only way to a relationship with God, both now and forever, then believing it is not arrogant. It's actually a humble submission to reality. Right? It's just, it is what it is. And teaching that Jesus is the only way is not intolerant, except in the sense that doctors are intolerant of poison and tolerant of medicine. Listen, I don't, I don't preach this stuff because 
it's going to make me popular or wealthy. It's not going to do either of those things. I preach this stuff because I have been radically confronted with a risen Jesus and brought into a living, breathing, life-transforming relationship with God because of Jesus. And that's most of our stories here, right? Do we know everything there is to know and every single doctor and have all the answers for everything? No. Does that make us ignorant? I don't know, maybe. But you know what? When you're in a forest and you're like, I just need to find my way out, it doesn't matter that you might be ignorant of like what's the name of that rock and the name of that little creature and the name of this tree. All you need to know is, man, this path eventually is going to lead us out of this forest. And that's what Jesus came to do. He was the path. He is the way to lead us out of our sinfulness and our rebellion back to God. There was just one Lord. You want to unite around something? Unite around this. You want to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, like it says in verse 3? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. No Jesus, no peace. And there's only one Father, it says in verse 6. And he is in everything and over everything. One Father means we got the same Father. Same Father means we got the same family. There's just one. There's only one family. We are the same family. This is that thing that is higher than us, more powerful than us, that we unite around. We unite around the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And how do we get to the triune God? Through one baptism or immersion, verse 5. Or have you forgotten that you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined with him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is what we symbolize when uh, we water baptize people. We're having a baptism on September 8th, and when we do that, we're, we're celebrating together in the physical, what has already happened in the spiritual, to baptize means to immerse in water or otherwise. And we have been baptized into the death of Jesus where our sin has been buried in the tomb and we have been baptized into his resurrection where we have risen with him into newness of life where behold, all things are made brand new and all the old things have passed away. You want to unite around something, unite around the one that we are baptized into, the one true God, because the Trinity is at the center of our unity. There is one body baptized into one Lord Jesus by one Spirit under one Father. And it is His work of salvation. One baptism into His death. We are incorporated into His resurrection, the resurrection of the Son, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and predestined by the Father to it. This is what unites us. The worldview of our day assumes humanity will naturally, eventually move toward unity if we just try harder and think about it more often. But it won't. We won't. There is nothing powerful enough and high enough to actually unite us. The best success that the world ever has, that we can ever have in the world, is when people are like, okay, maybe it's love. Maybe like if we could just unite around love. Bono wrote it. You too, right? Love is the higher law. And it is the higher law. And they get so close when they're like, let's just unite around love. Because God is love. They're so close. But love is not God. Love is only powerful and good because of who it emanates from. 
because of who it comes from. You can't get there. What we want in our culture is like relationships to be reconciled, right? We want governments and corporations and friends and families and races and genders and sexual orientations. We want it all to, to come and be united. This is what we, we're looking for. We're looking for reconciliation. Even the church, we're just like different types of people and different sects and different denominations. We want it to like come and be united in the church, but this only happens when we are united around something and united by something bigger and more powerful and more eminent than ourselves, more preeminent, rather, than ourselves. Keep the unity, he says, in the bond of peace. How could we ever have peace out here with us when we don't even have it in here? Jamie Winship, who, um, he was a CIA operative who was hired exclusively for the purpose of pacifying radical Muslims in the Middle East. And he did it for 25 years. And because he was a believer, he only had one real way to do it. His philosophy was the reason there's conflict out there is because there's conflict in here. If I can bring peace in here, there's going to be peace out there. And so he would introduce these radical Muslims to their identity, their true identity in Jesus. And the Prince of Peace would set up camp in their hearts. And then all of a sudden, peace would start to flow out of their lives. And they'd start laying down their weapons. He did this for 25 years. And the idea there is like legislation can't, can't bring us peace. Legislation only affects people's uh, actions. We can't change the laws and be like, okay, everything's good. It just affects the surface. You gotta change people's hearts. You want lasting unity, you want lasting peace. People's hearts have to be changed, and that only comes by the by the Father, by the power of the Spirit, through the finished work of Jesus. Says the beginning of that verse, make every effort to keep yourselves in the unity of the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Make every effort to keep yourselves united, he says. Make every effort to keep. In other words, to maintain, to preserve that which is already in effect. Why does he say that? Because when Jesus died on the cross, we talked about it a couple chapters ago, this is what Jesus did. He took all different kinds of people and said, I'm bringing you together in me. And Paul says, Jesus did the work, but now you need to maintain it. You need to to, to preserve it. You need to foster and nurture it. Live in a way, rather, that is consistent with what is already true about you. Namely, that your family. Live like your family. I, have a, I only have one brother, um, but he's five and a half years younger than me. And I have four sisters that are closer in age to me than he is. And so I naturally just hung out with those four siblings, my sisters, more right, and got closer with them than my brother. By the time he was old enough to, for me to want to hang out with them, I was far gone out of the house. And so we don't have a super close relationship. And so my mom is always like trying to get us to like, come on, just text each other. Did you tell your brother about that? Make sure you know, right? Like she's always putting us on three-way text, just getting us. In other words, she's like, can you please just act like brothers? In other words, can you act physically like what is true about you biologically? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, this is true about you. You are family. 
Can you act like it? You know, when Christians start gossiping and slandering one another, we say stuff like, it just brings so much division. And that's true, but not necessarily in the way that we think about it. Like, you can't actually be divided from people in the body of Christ, like fully. Just like I can't fully be divided from my brother. He's my blood. Like, he's got my blood inside of him. I've got his blood inside of me. We can't actually not be family. In fact, the second half of our passage today um, uses such strong language when you read it in the original language. And Paul is essentially saying this bond of unity— is as destruct, indestructible as God himself. When he's like, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one Father, one faith, the bond is indestructible. It is unbreakable. Can you just look at the person next to you and just say, you're stuck with me? When we were adopted into the family, we weren't adopted as only children. We were adopted into a family with a father and siblings. We were adopted into a family of siblings, whether we like it or not. And the, ba- the bond is even stronger than the blood of ethnicity because it is because of and by the blood of Jesus. That means you're stuck with them. Those people sitting next to you, that person on the other side of the whatever, You're stuck with them, and you may not like them that much, and you may not get them, and you may not see the things the way that they see them, and you may not worship and parent and do finances the way that they do them. But unless they are blatantly sinning, and living in unrepentant sin in a way that is contrary to what the Bible talks about, right? Which would be any kind of blatant unrepentant sin. Unless they're doing that, man, you just got to get over it. Sorry, there's no other way to say it. You just got to get over it. You got to get over it. That's your family. That's your brother. That's your sister. You think Jesus jived with everybody that was following him? No. But what did he say? He said in Matthew chapter 12, these are my brothers, though. These are my sisters, These are my mothers. This is my family. It's like when a good parent says to their children, or maybe only my mom said this to us, you don't have to like your sibling, but you will respect them. You will treat them like family. I'm not going to make you and your personalities sync up and your ideals sync up, but you will respect them like family because there's only one family. We are one people. We are, as it says in verse 4, one body. That means no matter what local church you go to, there is only one universal church. There is only one universal church. We're it, guys. We're it. We're it. We're the thing. We're God's body. We're the ones he wants to use to bring his light and his love and his life to the world. We're the body. And in this body, there's many, many members, and every single member is part of the body. Every single one is critical. Every single one is connected. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, he's like, when one suffers, all the body suffers. Because anybody who's ever had a jacked up foot, they know it jacks up their leg, and then it jacks up their hips, and then it jacks up their back. And everybody who has a jacked up back, you know your whole body's jacked when your back is jacked, right? The foot, all of a sudden, it's like, dude, my foot hurts. No, I can't do all the things I'm supposed to do as a human if my foot's jacked. 
When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. It doesn't matter how insignificant you feel like you are in the body of Christ. Friend, well, you're not good. We're actually not good. I'm not putting pressure on you like, get good. I'm just saying, man, that's how important you are to the body of Christ. Every, there's just one member. I mean, one body with many members. We're all affecting one another. You know, the church is uh, like a covenant community. It's a family. It's why we're calling this part of the series Kingdom Family. You were born again into a family. And you know what? You don't actually get to choose what families you're born into or adopted into. And you didn't get to choose this one. The Father chose you. Can you just look at your neighbor again and say, God chose me? <laughs> yes, he did. Say it like you mean it, like you're proud. Say, God chose me. Yeah. I'm happy God chose me. So I got six sisters and a brother. And all of us are a little strange in our own way, right? And I know for a fact that some of my siblings enjoy me better than others. I could just tell. And the truth is, I jive with certain of my siblings better than others, and that's all right. However, there is a bond that unites us, even though our values and our personality types and our preferences may not be the same, may not be in sync. They share my name. They share my blood, which means that we may nitpick each other when we're at like family gatherings, but when some outside force or person tries to come in and attack one of my siblings, you better believe I'm going to get their back. That's my family. Don't mess with my family. On one side, I got like East Coast, Italian, blow your kneecaps off kind of mob family. Like don't mess with my family. This is the kind of unity that Paul expects from the church. Don't mess with my family. That kind of unity. I'm just going to be harsh a little bit and say, I don't, I don't care about your petty disagreements. Who cares? Who cares about your petty disagreements? Stop it, man. Don't tell me that you don't like the way so-and-so dresses in the body of Christ. Or you're not okay with the way that they choose to raise their kids. Or you don't weirds you out that so-and-so prays in tongues. Who cares? Who cares? We do not unite around these things. We unite around a triune God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is higher and stronger and bigger than all of it. I was in a meeting recently where people started talking about like, okay, like if there should be more of this and more of that. And what about, okay, prophetic visions and dreams. And, and they were like, I don't like that stuff. And then it was like, well, I'm gonna put my stake over here. And we all started putting our stakes in the ground, making sure everybody knew where we stood as if we didn't all stand on the exact same hill where Jesus died. Come on. Are you kidding me? We don't stand on those hills. We don't crawl up on those hills and post camp up there. There's only one hill in the church, guys. There's only one hill that we die on. It's the hill where Jesus died. That's it. That's the only hill that we get to die on. We don't get to die on the hill of doctrine or fundamentalism. We don't die on the hill of things like vulnerability is, is good and powerful, although it may be. We don't die on the hill of emotional health is, is vital 
to your health as a well-being, although it may be. We don't die on the hill if charismatic gifts are a gift to the body, although they may be. We don't die on, but you got to homeschool your kids, or no, you got to be a light in the public schools with your kids. We don't die on whatever your thing is. Fill in the blank. We don't die on the hills of those things. Those hills are where unity goes to die. Where unity lives and is maintained and preserved is on the hill of Calvary where Jesus died. You want to die somewhere? Die with Jesus right there. And unity happens when we make this our aim. Jesus, the aim, right? Like you all seen those, those little pictures or whatever. It's like you're here, I'm here, Jesus is here. Let's just like go to Jesus. Whoa, we're getting closer to each other too. What a trip, right? Like let's all go to Jesus. Without the intimacy in Jesus, there can be no unity in the body of Christ. We go to Jesus, we all end up in the same place. Listen, I'm just going to speak personally on behalf of Reality Ventura. Reality has always been kind of a hodgepodge of different people from different kinds of traditions. In In this room right now, there are people who I know, I know you, you came, grew up in a Reformed church your whole life, where they taught that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit were not for today. And you're here, and we practice and believe in those things at this church. And I know people in this room who grew up in a, a Pentecostal church where you told me, yo, dude, you, unless you spoke in tongues, you were not a Christian. And we like never really fact-checked anything with the Bible. You've told me that. And you're here in this church where we believe somebody can be born again and full of the Spirit and not speak in tongues. And we fact-check everything with the Bible. And you're here. You're here. Reality has always been kind of this hodgepodge of that. And there was space for us because we don't die on those hills. We don't have to die on those hills. I don't want to step on Billy's toes next week. He's teaching the next couple verses, but homogeny is not the goal to all turn into the same, morph into the same thing. That's not the goal. The beauty of the body is that there's diversity. Now, I need to preach this to myself because I'm going to be honest. I am a very opinionated person who is pretty sure that I'm always right which means that I want everybody to see things and experience them like I do because I think it's the best way. And I feel like they're missing out if they don't. But the beauty of the body of Christ is there's only one Dominic Bally, and it's supposed to be like that. There's only one of me with my specific gift sets and, and way that I see God and my perspective. That's how it's supposed to be. That's good. Diversity is good. This is beautiful in the body of Christ. I heard somebody say recently, I'm just a normal Christian. Don't tell me that. There's no normal Christians. You're a masterpiece. Like master level created by God. And some of the most seemingly normal people in the body of Christ carry with them the most power and authority in the spiritual realm. There is diversity and it's good in the body. We're all a little bit different. Where it becomes a problem is when our, diver- our differences and our diversity becomes the hills that we live and die on. But if we're going to get off of those hills, you know what it's going to require? It's going to require what last week's verse taught us. It's going to require humility. It's going to require humility. Humility is a prerequisite to unity. In fact, I don't think that you can have unity without humility. 
which means that you're feeling a little disconnected from somebody in the church, in the body of Christ, maybe you need to humble yourself. That, that good chance, that could be the first step in this. And here's what I think practically humility would look like in regards to that. Humility should be able to look at every person in the body and say, I value what you bring to the table, even if I don't get it. I went to a potluck recently, and on the table, there was tomatoes. And I don't like tomatoes at all. But the main dish was burgers. And apparently, like, a lot of people don't think that burgers are complete without tomatoes. But here's the crazy thing. I am totally content living my entire life never eating a tomato. I feel like a whole bean. I'm like, good. (laughs) Never, yeah, bro, right? I don't need your tomato. I'm okay. And my burger is okay without a tomato. That doesn't mean, though, that I can't honor what the tomato brings to the table where the burgers are, right? I can still respect that and be like, I get that that makes somebody's burger better and they can't have a burger without a tomato. I get that. It doesn't mean I can't honor it. It also doesn't mean that whoever brought the tomatoes doesn't have to convince me, dude, I promise your burger would be better with a tomato, I know it's a funny question, but what's your tomato in the body of Christ? What's that thing that you're like, I'm just not inclined to that? In fact, I have a distaste for it in the church. Is it when people get too political? Is it when people preach sermons and don't include enough scripture in them? Is it the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit? Is it the the people who drink alcohol, the people who won't drink alcohol? What is it? What's the thing that you're like, nah, I just, nah, I just, nah. What is that thing? And here's my two questions for us to, like, ask ourselves. Number one, are you able to honor and value people in the body of Christ who are different than you? Are you able to look at the person who brought those tomatoes, the carrier of that thing that you just kind of, like, don't have a taste for, and find value in them and what they bring to the table, even though it may not be your preferred way? And if not, I'm not going to rebuke you and be like, get your act together. Because I don't want your actions to change. I want your, your eyesight to change. I want how you see to change. I want your heart to change. You know what changes our eyesight and our hearts? The gospel. Like we talked about last week. When we are stunned with what Jesus has already done for us. And the gospel says that Jesus humbled himself and showed you honor even though you brought nothing to his table. That's Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? Getting on his knees like a slave. He's showing them honor. When you had nothing to offer him, what did he do? He didn't just tolerate you. He didn't just put up with you. He cared enough about you to lay down his own rights for you. That's humility. That's love. That's what creates unity. Second question is, are you willing to compromise, learn, and grow? What if, just like what, maybe what if you didn't have it all figured out? Is it possible, tomato hater, that tomatoes have some kind of vital nutrient that you actually need? 
Is that possible? Are you willing to be humble enough to admit that you might be able to even learn something to the person who brings that thing, does that thing, carries that thing, is like that thing, thinks that way? You might even be able to learn something from them. And tomato lover, are you willing to humble yourself enough to honor that person to say, maybe their burger is awesome without a tomato? And I'm okay with that. Because it goes both ways, right? The tracks go both ways. Pride says, I deserve you to respect me. Humility says, I owe you respect. And when you say, Dom, I owe you respect. And when I'm humble enough to say, bro, sis, I owe you respect. Then we have taken our first step toward maintaining unity. Because I can love and honor and respect you and learn from you even though I may not totally get you. The problems arise when pride takes over and when conforming other people into our idealistic version of ourselves becomes the goal instead of them being conformed into the image of Christ. The problem is we all think that we're more like Jesus than them. Stop it. You're not. Problems arise when we think we've got it all figured out. So we start kind of just judging, like little judgments toward each other. Just little ones. They start little. Problems arise when we let fear lead us instead of love. Some of us are so afraid of, but if they do that, then, then maybe it'll get to, and then maybe it'll lead to, and then eventually it'll just, what if it becomes, we let fear lead us instead of love. I was talking to um, a missionary friend of realities, Peter Russell, who's been a missionary in Tanzania, Africa for 20-something years the other day. And, and he said, I'll put it on the screen, he said, we actually have more faith in Satan to lead us astray than we do in God to keep us. That's how many of us live and respond even to one another in the body of Christ. And it's okay to desire that somebody else has their capacity expanded. It's okay for like the, the Bible thumper person who's like Bible or nothing to desire for somebody to memorize more scripture. Fine, it's awesome. And it's okay for the Holy Spirit prophetic person for desire to, to, to desire somebody else to prophesy. Okay, yes, awesome. Both those things are Bible. Those are good things. But prophetic person, don't look down on somebody because they don't prophesy. Bible person, don't look down on somebody because they don't have scripture memorized. Humility says that I'm willing to lay aside my personal ideals and things that are not essential to the gospel for the sake of love and unity. Jesus laid down his rights, right? He laid down stuff in order uh, to accomplish something at hand for a bigger purpose, if you're having a hard time with this, man, let this stun you. Though he was God, this is Jesus. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to hold on to. I'm going to hold on to it. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. As a pastor and a friend, and a brother in the family. This is what I'm asking us to do. Humble ourselves and recognize 
that our way is not the only way. Be willing to not have people be be willing to not have people conformed into our image. Look for value and honor in every other person in the body of Christ. And let intimacy with God be our aim. This is what we see in Jesus and what humility looks like and what love looks like. I'll close with this. We're in a spiritual battle, guys. I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just saying what the Bible says. Like, we're just in a war, though you can't see it. The Bible says that we got shields of faith. Here's what's crazy about shields back in the day is they had a component to them to where they could link up with the shield of a co-soldier in order to make a unified front. They were also used to protect exposed spots. And when the fiery arrows from the other side would come, they could get down and the shield could become this one unified fortress. But here's what's crazy. You don't have to be a mile apart from somebody and a mile of division for there to be a a weakness in the fortified front. You just gotta get this much, just this much separation between you and somebody else in the body of Christ for it to be exposed and weak. A lot of us are like, I'm just gonna, I don't know, I'll just keep my distance from them. I just don't, I don't know, I'm just gonna, this much. It's just this much, it's not. That's all the enemy needs. That's all he needs, this much. And listen, there is so much that's gonna come from out there. We don't need to let it come from in here as well. But rather, encourage one another. I want to build people up like it says in Hebrews 10. I want to encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I left out the phrase at the beginning, but we only got one hope, verse 4. We only got one hope, and it is the same glorious hope of a future that every single one of us have, no matter where we come from or what we're going through. I want to spend my time encouraging you with that glorious hope. I want to spend time protecting your back, not stabbing you in the back. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against people. That's not who our fight is against. Your neighbor is not the one that you're fighting against. We wrestle against principalities and powers. You want to fight somebody? Fight the devil. You want to fight somebody? Fight the devil. But do not help him do his job by coming against brothers and sisters. Because if the devil can't get us from the outside, he will try to get us from the inside. And like Jesus said in Luke 11, a house divided against itself cannot stand. United we stand. Divided we fall. Let's pray. I'm actually just going to pause for a moment here and let you take stock of who in your heart you've kind of like just brushed off a little bit or written off a little bit distance yourself from a little bit in the body of Christ that little bit of distance is all the enemy needs to get in and you need to close that gap and you need to do it today 
If it's somebody that knows that there's some distance, then you need to do it with them. You need to do it to them. You need to leave here right now and go call them or go to their house or whatever. Walk across the room if they're in the room. If it's somebody who doesn't know, then you can just do that with you and the Lord. They don't need to know about it. The point is that you do it now. That's actually what the beginning of that, this verse means. When he says, make every effort. It's hard to translate to English, but the best way to say it is do it right now. Stop waiting. Do it. Keep the peace. Maintain unity. Go. Do it. That's what Paul's saying. Communion is up front as it always is during the second set of worship right now. Man, guys, this is where we unite around what Jesus did on the cross, around the cross of Jesus. If you got somebody in this room that you've been feeling just disconnected from for a bit, grab them, come and partake of the Lord's Supper together. There will be prayer team on the right and the left. They're here to pray with you. They would love to pray with you in any way for anything that you need, want prayer for. And then the carpets are here for us to take postures of worship as we worship.